the high level concept was always like, can we get you to feel hate and maybe even betrayed by this character? And then can we bring you back from that? That's the challenge. You know, with, with the first game, the mantra was always like, if you don't love Ellie, like she's part of your family, this game fails. That was a challenge. And with this game, the mantra has always been, if people don't like Abby, if people don't get Abby, this game fails. It doesn't, it won't work for them. Dad? It's her. Let's go. It doesn't sound good. No, she's in pain. Oh, shit. Abs. We've got to cut her loose. It's okay, Cobb. Don't worry. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to hold her. Okay. Calm down, calm down. Calm down. Doc, are you around here? Over here, Owen. Holy fuck. We did good back there. Doc, that girl showed up. What girl? The one Marlene keeps talking about. They found her in the tunnels. She has an old bite mark on her arm. No signs of infection. <laughs> that can't be. Welcome back to the official The Last of Us podcast. I'm Christian Spicer. Last episode, we covered Ellie's three days in Seattle and her hunt for members of the WLF. Today, we're discussing the game's other protagonist. If you don't want to know anything about this other protagonist, if you've been avoiding all spoilers, stop now. Otherwise, come with us as we discuss Abby, performed beautifully by the incredible Laura Bailey. So yeah, there are going to be spoilers, so if you haven't finished the game yet, listen at your own risk. The earliest pitch for the game actually was you played for with Abby for a long time, and in fact, she like joined Jackson. That's earliest iteration of the game, it was going to be open world, and there would have been several hubs. Um, so the first one is like, you play as a character that joins Jackson Abbey and you don't know who she is or what her past is. And she like is taken under Joel's wing. And you can tell these two characters have an affinity for one another where like Joel and Ellie had a falling out. And then you would keep playing and playing for hours until you reach this climactic moment where like all of a sudden the character you've been playing betrays Joel and kills him in this horrible way. And the idea was like, again, to play with the empathy you felt for the character and you think you understand this character and then reveal, no, you don't. This character has had an ulterior motive this whole time. The reason we didn't do that, or one of the main reasons, is that Joel dying is the inciting incident. In a story, you're trying to get to the inciting incident as fast as you can because that sets up the whole story. So it, it just felt like that would have really slowed things down and you'd be like, what is happening? Where is this going? And it fought a little bit against, <laughs> this might sound weird, it made it too easy for us. If we build too much empathy for Abby in the beginning, then we're not going on the journey, this, the vision of what this game is, what we set out to do, which is make you feel this intense hatred where like, we want people to say, I want to torture Abby. I want this eye for an eye. As far as we can get them, that's why that Joel death is intense as it is. We want to get you all the way there and then see how much we can bring you back. Oh, hi, I'm Laura Bailey, and I play Abby in The Last of Us Part Two. 
I, well, I had done some some like small parts in in part one, and then I did a little bit more. I ended up doing a bit more voice work for uh, Left Behind, the DLC, and I worked with Neil on that. And <laughs> he doesn't remember this conversation. I've had this talk with him before. He doesn't remember that he told me this. But uh, at the rap party for Left Behind, he sat me down at a table and he was like, so are you ready to come on board for part two? And I was like, oh my God, yes. Are you kidding me? This game is everything. And uh, and he's like, I have this role that I think you'd be, you'd be great at. Her name's Abby. And uh, didn't tell me much more about it. And then I didn't hear anything until the auditions came up. And I went in and I auditioned for Abby, even though he had told me that he thought I would be good for it. Um, and I, I was nervous as, I mean, I was so nervous because, you know, it's with Ashley and it's with Troy. And uh, it was killing me. So let's zoom all the way back to you as a human being. Right. Oh, hi. I'm yeah. Laura Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't know tragedy at all as real people, so this will be fun. No, um, but you as Laura, seeing, knowing this character and keeping this secret, and also, oh God, what was it, 2016, 2017? The E3 trailer that was like all you, but mum was the word about who you were, what you right? were, what it meant. And I imagine... Everyone had to be asking all of those things. I'm sure I was one of those people. It's just like, what the who is this? What is happening? Who's this buff chick? And I'm curious what that was like to to be a part of this thing that you were a fan of and a big part of, and to now be carrying this secret for four years. What was that experience like? So and, and how painful. did you kind of process it? <laughs> it's so well, this hard. is our moment of levity. Yeah, you can't, right. This can't. <laughs> no, I mean, if anything, it's just it's just torturous for my my ego. Just because you work so hard on something for so long and you just want to be able to share it. You just want to be able to, you know, get it out there and and you can't. It's although it has been really fun to see online, like everybody thinking they know who Abby is thinking. Dude. So many people thought she was Ellie's mom. Like everybody thought she was Ellie's mom. Yeah. So that was fun to see everybody get it wrong. You know, I would never want to play a role that just, you know, is everything that you'd expect it to be. Um, yeah, you always want to bring something more to it. And, uh, I feel like if, if at the end of the game, if you're not left conflicted, then I didn't do, I didn't do my job. Mel's wrong. You know, you're a good person. You don't know me. I know enough. It's an incredible writing challenge to get to say, hey, we're going to take this character and we're going to completely fuck ourselves in terms of empathy and uh, viewer sympathy and then climb our way back toward it. Like, that's exciting. And then to do it in ways that feel morally gray, right? Like, Addie, she's deeply flawed. She didn't get closure from killing Joel. She's on the outs with most of her pals. There have been huge consequences, right, to this hunt, to this murder, to this lack of closure. And we wanted to honor that, right, that all of this violence has consequences. So then we were doubly stacking ourselves because you already don't like this character. And we want to be honest about the fact that, like, yeah, most of her friends aren't huge fans of her either right now. And she's a little bit stubborn and doesn't really want to atone or, or you know, kind of, she just wants to go back to, to daily life. Joel Miller. Who are you? 
guess. Hmm. Why don't you say whatever speech you got rehearsed and get this over with? Do you think there's anything that Joel and Tommy could have done that would have stopped Abby in that moment from killing Joel? No. Do you think the fact that Joel and Tommy saved her life kind of wrecked Abby in a way that she otherwise maybe wouldn't have been if her plan, air quote, went according to plan? And let's say she they infiltrated the base, as she describes to Owen, or they capture somebody, they find out where Joel is, she sneaks in in the middle of the night and kills him. Does Abby have a happy ending then if it wasn't for the way she encountered Joel or was Abby's path always tragic in some regards? Um, I think even if things had gone off without Hitch and, you know, she hadn't had a a positive interaction with Joel or Tommy ever, um, I think she still would have come to the realization that she wasn't fulfilled afterwards. I don't think you can feel at peace ever once you've, you've dealt with that kind of a tragedy. intertwined with the brain. There's no other option. There has to be some other way. There's no way to remove the specimen without destroying the host. The host? She's a child, not some petri dish. You think I don't... I'm aware of the situation. And you're okay with killing her? No, I'm okay with developing a vaccine that'll help save millions of lives. Look, everything that we've been fighting for, all the sacrifices, all of the horrific... All of that is justified with this one act. I loved seeing Marlene again. And I feel like it was so wonderful, both the performances of the the characters in in game, and I imagine on set as well, but seeing Marlene become this multidimensional character in a way that maybe she wasn't in part one and seeing her struggle and that moment of of what to do. Because I feel like that, made a a gray game even grayer and seeing Marlene struggle with it. I'm curious if you could talk about kind of the importance of going back to that hospital and going back to that moment so many times and, and seeing it play out and not just talking around it, but letting us see it as well. Again, talking about story iteration, initially, Abby was a survivor from this caravan of people that were traveling across the country. That was the original opening for this pitch. And this caravan comes under attack and everyone is murdered by these two marauders. And then you're playing this little girl and she goes and she hides in the snow and she watches like her family getting killed. And then you see it's Joel and Tommy. And that felt interesting, right? Joel and Tommy had this past and here we could show it off. But again, speaking the theme of like the cycle of violence, once the idea came to be, it was like, what if it was someone related to the doctor of the first game, the doctor that... Everyone that finished the first game had to kill. Everyone has finished the first game is complicit in that act. I know the game forces you to do it, to finish it, but you still went ahead and did it. I didn't know it forced me. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people just go in guns blazing. I was hot. I was coming in hot. <laughs> um, so then to say, okay, we're going to take this character that was, I don't think we gave him a name in the first game, and flesh him out. 
and to say, okay, for this doctor that was going to operate on this girl, um, you know, doctors take this vow of like being ethical and here's someone that's going to break that to try to save millions of people in their mind. Well, how do we flesh them out? Again, we, we're trying to show the other side of the conflict. So how do we show, well, first of all, let's show his relationship with Abby. Let's show that, you know, he cares for like this animal that he's been tracking. He doesn't follow the rules. All of a sudden he becomes more fleshed out an interesting character. And then there was a little bit of, again, I forget the exact word, and there's a recording from Marlene in the first game where she says, I just finished speaking, <laughs> more like yelling at our head surgeon. Apparently, there's no way to extricate the parasite without eliminating the host. Fancy way of saying we gotta kill the fucking kid. And she felt like they were just, out of respect, they brought it up to her. But it really, it, it was like a non-choice. And I was like, I kept thinking about that conversation. What would that conversation be like? So then it felt, well, we're going back there. Let's see that conversation. Let's, let's now's our chance to get into it and show Marlene and just show that everybody struggled with this choice. It wasn't like the doctor was like, well, fuck this 14 year old girl. I don't, I don't care. Let's just kill her. It's like, no, he really struggled with it. And Marlene presents him with the question, the hardest question is like, if this was your daughter, what if it was Abby? What would you do? And he doesn't answer it. And Abby kind of saves him from like having to answer it by walking in. But you see like even to the end when Abby says like, I would want you to do it if it were me. Um, he doesn't say yes or no, um, so. Abby. I'll buy some dinner. Thank you, sweetheart. Look, Marlene. Do it. Thank you. I'm gonna go tell Joel. Why? Traveled across the country with her. He has a right to know. Good luck with your surgery. You're doing the right thing. If it was me, I'd want you to do the surgery. <laughs> and and to me, it just hit too, like a thing that I knew happened, but seeing Marlene say she's going to go tell Joel. And it's just like, you talk about, you know, knowing the story. And that's a moment where you know, if you've played the first game, you know the story. Mm -hmm. But still seeing it, it's just such a, a moment of just, I don't know if it's sympathy or empathy exactly, but just this longing of like, yeah, that's the right thing to do. But damn, if only you knew what was If only going you were like colder, right? If only you were more sinister, you would just go put a bullet in the back of his head and you'd be done. But it's 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 kind of like that idea of like no good deed goes unpunished in this world. I'd love to get your take on what each faction type maybe represents in the world or the themes of the game. Well, I think both are trying to do 
a similar thing just from different camps, right? So the Seraphites or the Scars are talking about religious extremism and how the backstory with the Seraphites is that they had a prophet, a woman, who saved a bunch of people during the outbreak and then and had these sort of very beautiful teachings and the group underneath her became more extreme, more radical, um, more violent, and kind of, Lev would say, took her teachings in a direction that she had not originally intended, right? So, so they, by the time Ellie arrives in Seattle, they are very well entrenched in this world. They believe that Seattle has been ordained to them. And they represent this theme that we've got going on about the cycle of violence and this escalation, right? So as you get to learn their conflict with the WLF, who's responsible, whose fault is whose, is completely lost to history. And it's just, well, you wronged me, well, you're encroaching on me, well, you're encroaching on me. And the WLF, the wolves as well, represent the same side, but on a more like civil military angle, where... You know, originally they were civilians and ex-fireflies going up against a corrupt government that was taking care of Seattle and then in their own way became much more aggressive, ultimately not being able to make peace with the scars. And so really with this, we want to have this macro version of what happens when you don't stop. You know, what happens when you don't put the knife down? It's just this continued escalation toward destruction and everybody loses, right? And you can't even remember why you did it, but the ego is so driving these characters, the sense of what they're entitled to and how they've been wronged. And there's really no way out of it. point do you think that in the story, uh, and I might not quite have the right word here, but at what point do you think you earn players liking Abby? If we're talking structurally, her inciting incident is really hooking up with the kids. And then her end of act one sort of heeding the call is collecting the kids and including them and bringing them to the aquarium for safety. So In my mind, that is her first truly selfless act in the game, and thus the first time maybe a lot of players will feel like she deserves consideration. You know, these kids would be dead without her. So there's a little bit of a life for a life there. I feel like it leads to such a beautifully tragic moment with Abby. She goes through so much to save Yara. Like, it's such a big part of her three days is that visit to the hospital and potentially ground zero, or at least Seattle ground zero. Yeah, yeah. Going to the hospital was something we had really early on and has stayed pretty consistent throughout. It was very much like, we need time for you to fall in love with this kid. Because this kid is responsible for so many of these actions inadvertently largely, but sometimes intentionally. You want to understand why he's doing it. You want to care for him. Like, again, so much of this game is making judgments based on just bullet points about a person and then coming to understand the larger picture. It's like, okay, this kid ran away from his extreme religious background and because he shaved his head and dragged his sister on this destructive path with him. 
let's get an understanding of how much love and hope and, and naivete is surrounding him. I'm Ian Alexander, and I play Lev in The Last of Us Part Two. You know, this has been a game that I've been working on since I was like 16 years old. So I'm I'm 19 now. It's been three years. I've grown a lot. I know my voice has changed a lot since what you probably heard in the game. And um, I've just been like so grateful to have the opportunity to grow and to like have such a raw, vulnerable, sensitive, but strong character to play. It's just been such a learning experience and such an amazing, life-changing experience. I'm curious what it was like to play that kind of balancing, maybe, how um, a real-world young teenager would feel in our world versus um, Lev um, growing up in the environment where he has had to do the things he needs to do to survive. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, Lev has to grow up super, super fast because of all the trauma that he's dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And I mean, it's the same with like kids growing up nowadays in like war-torn countries. Like you just, you you don't have time to like be a kid when you're running from, you know, soldiers and trying to protect your own life. So there is like a lot of hardened warrior, warrior-like tendencies to Lev. Like you said, badass, like he he's like bloodthirsty, you know, sometimes, but also he's still a kid. So there is that like sensitive, innocent, naive side. I mean, he asks Abby a lot of questions because <laughs> he's like very curious kid and, um, doesn't know a whole lot about the world because he was raised pretty sheltered, aside from the fact that, you know, he knows how to kill people. There are thousands of us. Do you know every scar? Stop calling us scars. Sure. Scars built all this? Seraphites. Yeah, I was gonna say that. It's pretty cool. What's cool? Like, impressive. Awesome. Fuck these scars. Seraphites, whatever. Yeah, fuck them. Never heard a Seraphite cuss before. It's my first time. But I think that uh, growing up in that kind of environment, I mean, Lev becomes super adaptable, super agile. You know, he he knows how to take care of himself, how to survive. And I really admire that. I, I admire that so much in Lev. And I, I think... When I was 13, I was just kind of like clueless, you know, bumbling around. I don't think I can see, I can compare like my 13-year-old self to Lev in any sort of way. Like, I think I see more of myself now in Lev than I do like my teenage self just because of like how mature and like grown up he is. I'd love to get your take on kind of what that relationship between Lev and Abby is like and kind of how that evolved over the course of the game. Yeah, I think very much in the sense that Lev and Abby balance each other out. It's kind of reminiscent of Ellie and Joel's relationship, you know, of this like hardened, grisly warrior character, and then like a more innocent, but still hardy, you know, still badass younger character coming in and kind of changing their perspective on life and like helping them be more hopeful and optimistic. And then... On the other side, it's like the older character helps the younger character grow up and like protect themselves better and see the world in different perspectives. And I really love that, that growth, that character arc for both Lev and Abby, where they they overcome their prejudices against each other because, you know, their whole lives they've been taught that the other person is the enemy, you know, the wolf soldiers are the enemy. So they they fight and bicker and have judgments of each other, you know, like just all these prejudices from a lifetime of hatred. 
And then they overcome that and become friends. And it's just the most beautiful thing of like people from two completely different walks of life who have completely different experiences can still have similarities enough to fight together and to have each other's backs. We did it. We killed that big demon. Yeah, we did. Come on. I'd, um, I'd, I'd love it if you could talk about Lev's relationship to his faith and, and maybe what those struggles were and, and how he came to make the decisions he made. Yeah. Um, so the Seraphites are very uh, restrictive in like the binary, you know, the women have to look a specific way. The men have to look a specific way. Everyone is expected to wear, you know, traditional dress. They have their traditions, their beliefs. And it very much is a... I wouldn't like I wouldn't go as far to say, well, I will go as far to say a religious cult. And that is something that I had experience with growing up in my life um, in a very conservative, restrictive religion. So I kind of have a similar experience where Lev has to break free of his, you know, restrictive upbringing because of his identity and who he is. He just can't bear to live um, in a lie anymore. And so even though it puts him at the risk of death and all of his loved ones in a, in a dangerous situation, he just has to be true to himself. And so he, you know, shaves off all of his hair. And it actually is a really, really meaningful moment in the game to me where Abby asks, you know, like, do you want to talk about it? Did you hear what they called me? Yeah. Do you want to ask me about it? Do you want me to ask you about it? No. Okay. And then they just, you know, they don't really talk about it. Um, It is something that is so deeply personal to Lev. He's probably coming to terms with, you know, a crisis of faith, which is something that I went through as well, being like, is everything that I was raised to believe wrong? Like, now what does this mean if the people that I loved and cared about the most are now turned against me because of me just trying to be happy and just, you know, trying to be true to myself? So I think Lev does really struggle with that internally and eventually comes to a place of realizing that he has to, you know, put himself first and his his loved ones first. And when he tries to go back for his mother, you know, it, it doesn't go well. I just tried talking to her. I tried to make her understand. She, she just kept yelling. And I think that's kind of the breaking point for him of realizing like, oh, I can't save everyone that I want to save. So I have to save myself. I have to save the people that are with me. I think it was very interesting to have, especially with Lev and Yara, characters who grew up in a belief system and grew up in a cloistered belief system. And, you know, there's a scene in the aquarium when Abby and Yara are looking for Lev, um, where... Abby is showing, or Yara lingers on a map of the west coast of the United States. Where is Santa Barbara? It's in California. Where's California? Okay, so look, uh, this is Seattle, and this is Santa Barbara. And Yara says, okay, but where are we? And our island? And then Abby points again to Seattle. so far. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the first time that Yara realizes how big the world is. You know, she has no concept that there's so much out there that Abby has traveled so far. 
Um, and there's something very interesting to that insular, isolated life. So whereas the WLF, you may not agree with their position, but, you know, we still have in-game dialogue where characters are vaguely talking about reading Harry Potter and taking their kids to school, and, and it's very... They seem aware of the past. You know, Lev and Yara have no concept of the old, you know, quote-unquote old world. So I think that was a really lovely opportunity. We wanted to not point fingers at any one religion, right? So in talking about religious extremism, we certainly didn't want to single out anybody. So the easiest tack, I think, for us was to create a religion and to create a religion that felt very much of this world, just in terms of um, how religion can evolve and change as generations move through it and how the original intentions of somebody, you know, if like everybody grows and changes and sometimes it becomes corrupted. trying to explore the state of the world, we became intrigued with this idea of like, okay, what does ground zero look like? You know, when Abby heads to that hospital basement and it's like some of the earliest infected. <laughs> what the fuck did this? And we had a desire that came with this idea of a rat king. I don't know if you're familiar with this concept of rat kings, but like those rats and sewers can get all tangled together and then they move this one unit. I was like, okay, well, how many infected can we fuse together that have been stuck there for who knows how many years, and have this big kind of monster come after you. It was like a sort of homage to horror movies and horror games like Resident Evil. It's like, okay, that's our Resident Evil moment. It's gonna be this, this crazy boss fight. But thematically, right, it's just, it's again, it's a constant reminder of the state of the world. It's a constant reminder there's this pressure on these characters at every moment. Every moment, death is around the corner. Um, and how do you operate? How do you find a normal life when that's always there? And it was important for you to feel that tension every few steps of the way. Why then? Why was it important or why did it feel important to have that moment of this closed off singular fight between Abby and this creature in terms of what that says about the experience and, and what you're going on as a player. Yeah, as um, in kind of classical narrative structure is the, there's a character that wants something and they're going to take the path of least resistance to get it. And you want to keep putting bigger and bigger obstacles in their way to show their will, to show how badly they want it and how much they're willing to like go outside their comfort zone to get it. So if you think about like Abby at that point had decided that she needs to save these kids no matter what, like this is her redemption. She has made this choice. And now like Yara is on table dying because her arm is broken and maybe Abby feels guilty that she didn't bring her here for help sooner. And the clock is ticking to save this girl. And at first it's like, okay, it's gonna be that there's flooded streets and you gotta get past that. And you gotta do some dangerous jumps. Oh, fuck. Then we're gonna 
throw some infected your way and you're gonna fight them. Okay, now we're trying to get into height and Abby's fear of height and she has to overcome that. Just to keep try going. not to look down. Now she has to like start lying and betraying her own group to try to get the medicine. I need to grab some medical supplies. I'm doing a thing for Isaac. We're moving all these assets to Isaac. What does he need? Uh, I can't talk about it. It's something away from the fob. Take a look, see if anyone's got what you need. And then she's in this basement where like, essentially a giant demon is coming after her and she's gonna keep going. And that one, we're just showing her will and what she's willing to put on the line to save these kids. And then things are gonna get worse and worse for her to try to save them. But that's where we were at that point. And again, looking at pacing wise, it was like it felt like okay, it was time for something new, something fresh, something that like tells you a bit more about the world and what happened. Um, so this solution kind of answered all those things. And it was this nice kind of climactic moment of having this big satisfying fight and coming out with this medicine and like thinking, oh, I'm gonna save this girl. Everything's gonna be okay. There is the moment from Mel who has a history with Abby, a, a history that we don't see. Um, and this moment is likely out of what she feels is happening between Abby and Owen. And they certainly have a history, some of which we see, some of which we don't. And Mel, with all seriousness and the weight of the world on her shoulders, looks at Abby and says, you're a piece of shit. You always have been, you always will be. And I felt like that landed to Abby. Was Abby a piece of shit? Yeah. I mean, she didn't realize it, right? I mean, her whole focus, her whole focus in life was making things right, in quotes, you know? And for years, that's all she focused on, and all of her relationships suffered for it. And I think the reason that that hit so hard from Mel is because Abby, at that point, has the self-loathing. She already had the recognition that, oh, God, I am pretty fucking shitty. So to have somebody else call you out on it, especially when you've made the realization and maybe you're trying and nobody else is seeing it yet. Because Owen also tries to connect with her in the, uh, the idea that you're allowed to be happy. We're allowed to be happy. Coming to Santa Barbara, right? I can't. You know why. We can figure this out. It's too late. No, no, it isn't. Look, I know. I know it's a fucking mess. I know. But we can choose to be happy. Happy. We're allowed to be happy. And so I'm, I'm curious what Abby thought happiness could be in that moment when Owen tries to connect with her, because she has killed Joel. She's recognized that that's not the end all solution. Um, you know, revenge won't bring them back kind of lesson. Mm -hmm. Why can't she be happy? <laughs> um, because she doesn't deserve it. You know, that's like, 
he can say you're allowed to be happy, but after the the sins committed, I don't think she thinks she can she can do that. But you know, the loss of her dad, which you know, in all the scenes you get with him, you understand like what a bright spot he was and how positive he was. And you know, I think her time with the fireflies really, even though she hadn't experienced life before, she still had them saying there's hope, right? That's what Mm. they meant. There's hope that this won't last forever and there will be a peace coming. And when that's taken away, I I think a lot, I think her hope died, you know? And I don't think she, she fully understands what even that means anymore. PTSD has sort of a through line in the game, and I feel like Abby and Ellie both suffer from it um, because they both have been through these very traumatic events and how they act out in the game, I feel like very clearly shows how trauma can tear you apart if it's untreated. And it's a very serious topic of conversation. And, you know, I I don't ever want to compare acting to people going through these actually tra- traumatic events in life, because that's not fair. But I still think this was a very important story to tell. And also exploring and researching and seeing how I can sort of properly convey those emotions. And, you know, I, I'm, I, I am someone who um, suffers from panic attacks. And... I don't have PTSD, but I definitely have had some moments in my life that many people would consider traumatic. Something as a panic attack is is no joke. And it's very awful and you feel like you're going to die in that moment. And um, it's... I feel like I've never really talked talked this out with someone that's not my therapist. So it's it's kind of it's it's a tough conversation, but I feel like it's also a tough conversation because it's not something that people talk about a lot. And it's there's still this sort of weirdness about talking about mental health and I feel like there is this viewpoint that we have around uh, mental health that we don't make a space to work on it because it's almost viewed poorly on if you do something. Like, no, 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 you got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you can handle this. And, you know, we take medication for blood pressure. We take medication for uh, uh, headaches and serious problems that we have. But for some reason, dealing with mental health or any of this other stuff, it's, it's taboo to talk about. Even I still don't know how to talk about it. Clearly, I'm having, I'm struggling through this, but I don't want to have that anymore. And I think if we sort of have these issues talked about in entertainment and video games and in movies and sort of make them more present so people can see that it's out there and people deal with these things, maybe it'll be an easier conversation to talk about and we can figure out better ways to deal with them. I've suffered from PTSD. Um, so there was, I was able to really bring that to Ellie, which was exciting. I, I think 
you don't get to see that a lot in the media. You don't get to see a lot of like women struggling with trauma, women being resilient right now. We're seeing a lot of women who are just sort of Captain Marvel perfect and impervious to the hardships around them and can take a punch and keep on kicking. But I was always inspired by Ellie that like life is really hard and life continues to knock the shit out of her and she keeps picking herself back up. And you see her even at the end of this game, she picks herself back up and she gets her backpack on a few fingers lighter um, and she heads out. And that was what I wanted to see. I wanted to, to see facets of resiliency in all of the characters. And so I just sort of I don't know. I drew from life. I got checked against other people. And and also trying to figure out how did none of these characters feel black and white? How do they all feel morally gray? We talked to Hallie about PTSD and how it it touches on that in a very real way. And I'm curious as a performer how you kind of unlock that and then put it back again, um, kind of dealing with such a brutal world, you know? Um, as characters say in the game, they, they call Abby a, a piece of shit. How do you play that character? How do you tap into that? But then also let it go when you need to be a decent human being. <laughs> And, uh, and then some of it sticks with you. Um, <laughs> you know, but I mean, to that end, I think that's that's exactly what they have to do in that world. Everybody has to be able to instantly put on and take off the brutal hat because you can't constantly live as a killer, right? You don't, you do these heinous things and then you go and you have a drink with your buddies. I think to Abby and anybody really that is, you know, somebody on the front lines in this kind of a situation, they have to be somebody that can turn that switch off in themselves and just move like a machine. Um, so it, it does, it, it haunts you just a little bit coming off those kind of days. I certainly, you know, doing scenes like finding my dad or finding Owen those were all kind of days back to back and I was fucked for a few a few days afterwards because you have so much emotion just pouring out of you and you have you, it, your body doesn't realize that you're acting, you know. You create those emotions in yourself and then they're just there. And uh and you just kind of have to deal with it until they they find a way out again. Related to finding a way out or finding humanity um, and PTSD, Abby relives these moments of um, walking into the hospital, the operating room, and, and seeing her dad dead there. And we see that moment um, as it happened, and we see it in Abby's dreams. And then one of those moments is Abby in that hospital, walking through the corridor. And then seeing Yara and Lev, and kind of what happens to them if she does nothing. And I'm curious to get your take on Abby's decision to save them, and, and what that means to her, and what it means to her in that moment, and, and why she decides to act versus letting that be a thing that she kind of sheds off, because um, it's just part of life for her. 
it's that that's premeditated, right? That's a uh, everything else is about survival. To sit back and know that they're just gonna suffer. That's something different. So why this time? Why then did she need to go back for them? And especially for Yara, she she puts it all on the line for Yara to ultimately have her die. Right. Why does Abby do that? You know, coming off that dream, coming off the realization of where she was at that point in her life, which is exactly where Lev and Yara are, age-wise, coming off of having just really been a pretty shitty human after everything with that just happened with Owen. Uh, I think that that moment of going, I can't, I can't live with myself if I if I don't go do something, you know? At least try um, is a huge is a huge turning point for Abby. Do you think she succeeds? Yeah. Yeah. I do. Um yeah, I think I think she realizes that there is a cost, you know? Does she have hope? Does Abby have hope? Yes. Yes, there is hope. I mean, what's crazy is what you're seeing Ellie go through is everything Abby went through. There would be a period where she wouldn't see that everything was her fault. She would think like, "This is on. This is on Joel. This is on uh, Owen for you know getting Mel pregnant. This is for. This is on Ellie for coming back after we let her live. How dare she? And then finally coming to the reality of this is on me. This is this is based on my actions. I'm the one that set this in motion. Um, and finding a, a peace with that." If there can be, I think Lev certainly um, helps her see uh, a, a possibility that she can forgive herself and find redemption in whatever way she can. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the reasons it's so important, he's so important to her, is I can find redemption through, through keeping this kid alive. Come on, those were your fucking people. Hey, you're my people. Listen to me. We're gonna have to fight to get out of this, okay? And then I need you to show us to those boats. We don't let anybody stop us. Yeah? Next time on the official The Last of Us podcast. I put down my controller and I'll, I just, I kept saying, no, 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 no. I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to fight this person anymore. This whole kind of like cycle of violence and all this, like all these people left dead and maimed and traumatized. Somehow something good came out of that at the end. You know, there's endure and survive physically, but what does that mean for your soul? 
The official The Last of Us podcast is produced by PlayStation and Spoke Media. It's hosted by me, Christian Spicer, and written by Brigham Mosley. Our Sony PlayStation team includes Charlie Yader, Christian Cardona, and Carrie Surtees. Our Naughty Dog team includes Arnie Meyer and Scott Lowe. Our production team is Carson McCain, Kelly Kolf, Trey Jones, Reyes Mendoza, and Alicia Force. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett, who contributed additional sound design and music. Today's episode included interviews with Neil Druckmann, Hallie Gross, Ian Alexander, Laura Bailey, and Ashley Johnson. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tabakolian and Keith Reynolds. Thanks for listening.